BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to Noble Blood, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion advised. Hello, welcome to a very special episode of Noble Blood. I am here with my friend, the brilliant writer and historian, Jennifer Wright. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Dana. I am so happy to be here again. I am genuinely thrilled to be doing this episode with you. We are going to be talking about Josephine Bonaparte, which was not her actual name, really. It was not. Uh, But for popular reference, Josephine Bonaparte. And what I find very exciting is coincidentally, both you and I separately saw the Napoleon movie, the Ridley Scott movie last night. We did, yes. I was at the Americana. I was at the Grove. Oh my God, we were both doing a Rick Caruso (laughs) mini mini town. That's a very LA thing to say. Um, I really liked it. I had a blast. I really enjoyed it. I think there are some historical accuracies. I don't think they matter. I think there are historical accuracies in Marie Antoinette by Sofia Coppola. Doesn't stop it from being an amazing movie. I think they're historical inaccuracies in Marie Antoinette starring Norma Shear doesn't make it less of an amazing powerhouse performance by Norma Shear. I have gone on the record and I will continue to go on the record and say that I think historical fiction should not operate like a history book. No, it's entertainment. It's entertainment. It's about theme. It's about character. It's about It's about vibes. It's vibes. And boy, do they get the vibes of the French Revolution and the vibes of Napoleon being a very unpleasant little band. I I wrote my Letterboxd review, which is the most film bro thing I'll ever say. And then my Letterboxd review was like, it is a misconception that Napoleon was short. He He was was average height. That was average height. Average height at the time. He was very hunched and he was poorly fed growing up because his mother cared a great deal about having furniture in her (laughs) house, but not providing food for her children. And of course, there was the discrepancy in the English system of measurement and the French system of measurement. Well, and also, as emperors go, if you were British... Um, Wellington was 5'10". I... And Napoleon had had two guards next to him who were very tall. Very tall. But my, my letterbox review was that uh, Napoleon was not short, but as this movie uh, makes abundantly clear, he was Europe's weirdest little guy. <laughs> that is exactly it's right. That is absolutely uh, true. And the beautiful Vanessa Kirby played Josephine, which we'll get into her life. But to segue, I will say I did find it very Hollywood that... They got an actress like 15 years younger than Joaquin Phoenix when... When in reality, Josephine was six years older than Napoleon, and Napoleon was very young when they met. 24. Tell me about Josephine before they met. Well, I want to talk about another person who I know we've talked about on the podcast before as well, and that's Madame Pompadour. And the reason that my, my favorite historical woman... And that's because when Josephine was 15 years old, she was told by a fortune teller that she would marry a dark man who would cover the world in glory and make her greater than a queen. And I was so struck by this because this also happened to Madame Pompadour, Louis XV's mistress. 
these fortune tellers are just out here. Every pretty young girl. I think think these fortune tellers were not uncannily accurate. I think they just realized that if a young girl comes in, just tell her she's going to be a princess. And if she's a very beautiful, they're like, you will marry a a great man. A great man, yes. Uh, Yeah, when Madame Pompadour was nine, the fortune teller told her that she would capture the heart of a king and be not quite a queen, but a little queen. And... uh, Just to give you a little bit of perspective on Madame Pompadour, because I think there's such fascinating archetypes of pre-revolutionary and post-revolutionary women. Madame Pompadour, who was born Jean Poisson, was by almost any stretch of the definition a genius. She was extremely well-educated. She was almost compulsively well-read, so much so that the most famous portraits of her by Boucher show her reading and surrounded by more books. When she was told to get married by her family, she married a wealthier man who was not excited about the prospect of marrying this middle-class bourgeois woman. He met her. He was immediately in love with her, so much so that he was devastated when the king took her for his mistress. As soon as she was let loose in Paris, she dominated every literary salon. Voltaire became her closest friend. Yeah, why not? She was able to secure him a position at court. And uh, I think... It's pretty well established that once she was made the king's mistress, she was a great champion of the Enlightenment. She fought against censorship. She was friends with Diderot and Montesquieu. She fought the Catholic Church to create the French Encyclopedia. The king considered her his best advisor and consulted with her on every matter. He should not have done that. During the Seven Years' War, she did not know where to place cannons. She was very unlike you know, Napoleon. You know, I was going to say, you know who knew how to play can- <laughs> place cannons is Napoleon. Uh, but uh, I think it's also true that, and I don't want to dismiss Madame Pompadour as being frivolous because I think she was very concerned about, for instance, what she saw as the overreach of the Catholic Church or censorship or the continued expansion of the Russian military. But Madame Pompadour's greatest day-to-day concern was whether or not she was able to sexually satisfy the king nine times a day as he requested. Wow, all right. And when her frail health after six years meant that she was no longer able to do that, um, the king just gave her a new role at court that basically equated to the king's best friend. Instagrammer? Yeah, uh, she celebrated it by giving him a naked statue of herself, cupping her breasts at him, entitled The Spirit of Friendship. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great, that's a great inspiration. And uh, she's perhaps best remembered for her statement, Après nous la déluge, uh, it came after the epic failure that was the Seven Years' War when France's army was just destroyed and their economy entirely depleted. And what it means is after us will come the flood. Hmm. And Josephine was really bored into that flood, quite literally. She was born Marie-Joseph-Rose Taché de la Pagerie. Um, she would come to be known as Josephine only when Napoleon started calling her Josephine. She was largely known as Rose throughout her life until now. Well, that's the the good thing about having three hyphenated names is people can just choose their favorite and go with it. That is exactly what happened to Josephine. Um, She was born on a sugar plantation in Martinique in 1763, and she was born a year before Madame Pompadour died at the age of 42. Can I interrupt so briefly? Just a historical fact that has always fascinated me is Martinique went back and forth between the British British and uh, the French. And I know that it went from the British to the French just four months Mm -hmm. before Josephine was born. Yep. 
So there's a world where she was born and she was British and she's off seducing, I don't know, the Duke of Wellington. Lord Nelson, yeah, Duke of Wellington, sure. Um, when she was three, her house was entirely destroyed by a hurricane. And rather than rebuilding it, her father, who was a chronic gambler, just kind of moved them into the one non-destroyed part of the house. Um, she was never properly educated. She, to be fair, she was also not interested in books in any capacity. Yeah. Um, uh, she was left to run essentially wild on the plantation. She mostly ate sugar, which destroyed <laughs> her teeth entirely and made her very overweight. Um, and just for a little perspective, again, because I love the balance between these two women, when Madame Pompadour told her family about the fortune teller's prophecy, which she'd heard because she was on a girl's day with her mom when she was getting their fortunes read. Her entire family was delighted and they started calling her Redette, which means our little queen. Um, when Josephine told her family about the prophecy, she was locked in a shack for eight days <laughs> because they accused her of consorting with a witch. Sure. So Josephine is not growing up in the free-flourishing Enlightenment era France that some of her contemporaries were. And because she now had rotted teeth and was very overweight and her family was completely broke, she was not married off to a plantation owner's son. Um, and her marriage prospects were looking very, very bad by the time she was 15. But she had an aunt who had been a marquis's mistress for 18 years. And the marquis was getting older and he was worried about the long-term security of his mistress. And Josephine's aunt convinced the Marquis to marry his son to Josephine. So Josephine goes off to marry Alexandre de Beauharnais. He is 17. He already has a 29-year-old mistress. Um, her name is Madame de Longpre. Apparently, she's very charming and witty. I've never read anything about Madame de Longpre that doesn't make her seem like a bitch. But <laughs> fine. Um, he has a 29-year-old mistress, and he is horrified when Josephine gets off the boat. Um, he is deeply disappointed in her appearance. He's deeply disappointed in her lack of education. He starts forcing her to go out to literary salons uh, where people immediately make fun of her for being an idiot. Um, women say that she looks like a little girl dressed up in her mother's clothes. Oh, her Josephine. Um, and Okay, to be fair, I don't want this to be mean, but the literary salons at this particular time were mostly just discussing dangerous liaisons. <laughs> uh, which, look, I, book I, they, I, were, they were very uh, specific book clubs. I love dangerous liaisons, but it is 400 pages of very horny letters from imaginary aristocrats back and forth. Yeah. If your only takeaway after reading dangerous liaisons was, I think it would be fun to have sex with the Vicomte de Valmont. That would be a completely valid contribution. Yeah, what if and indeed all it should be. What if he's played by Ryan Phillippe? It, exactly, yeah. What if they made him wear a suit as a high school student? Yeah. <laughs> well, of course, very sexy. I once saw, this is my uh, fun fact, mm -hmm. I once saw uh, Dangerous Liaisons on Broadway with Lieb Schreiber in that role. 
And he, it doesn't work. I saw it too. He was not it doesn't good. work. He looks like a jock. Well, um, I also thought the Alan Rickman clips are uh, still online if you ever want to look those. My up. take on Leap Schreiber was I was like, I think he was going through a divorce at the time. <laughs> and I was like, is there real wine in the Karaf? <laughs> like, he did not seem like engaged. He's a good actor and it just was not working. He doesn't seem like he has the finesse of the Velma. No, he's, he, he did not seem sneaky. Yeah. Uh, did not work. Yeah, no. He, uh, he seems... He seems like a battle axe. He doesn't seem like someone who enjoys the secrecy and power games surroundings. Yeah. So that is uh, my little Broadway review corner. Mm-hmm. Please continue. So she's I, being mocked at this hour. She's being mocked at the salons. And in a, she ends up having two children by Alexandre. And there is, look, there is a part of me that loves the fact that Madame Pompadour so thoroughly dominated the public imagination in terms of what a sexy, desirable woman is. Alexandre responded to this by being like, I cannot possibly fuck, let alone love, a woman who does not go to book clubs. I mean, that's great. It's like when, you know, our, our culture, what is sexy is a cultural concept. It's a cultural I think concept. that like in the early 2000s, there's that like Girls Gone Wild, Paris Hilton mm-hmm. thing. And then we got like the smartest, sexy. And I think that it's interesting that that was it, still happening in the 1700s. It fluctuates back and forth. Yeah. And that is fascinating. Isn't it fun that women have to uh, shape our very identities Entities. in order to be desirable? Um, yes. But Alexandre says that he can po- not possibly remain at home with this object who has nothing to say to him. Oh. So again, this is devastating for Josephine. And he goes off with his mistress, Lord Longpre, but not before impregnating Josephine twice. Now, when she is having his sack, immediately after she has... Hortense his, is number one. Eugene. Yeah. Eugene, yeah. Yep. Um, immediately after she had his second child, Alexandre decides to divorce her so he can be with his mistress in a truly insane response. He accuses her of infidelity he says that she is lower than all the sluts on the earth. Uh, Josephine has been nothing but faithful this entire period. You're calling Josephine a slut. I'm sorry also for using this slur. It, they say it explicitly in the movie Napoleon. They do. Um, well, we'll come to that. Yeah. <laughs> but at this point, totally fine. At this point, very, very fine. Uh, and again, not to slut shame. Be a slut. Do whatever. Sure. At this point, she has been uh, uh, nothing but incredibly faithful, faithful. to uh, Alexandre. Um, Josephine retires to a convent to wait out the proceedings for legal separation. A lot of women did this. Getting back to dangerous liaisons, Madame Trouvel retires yeah. to a convent to escape the advances of the Vicomte de Valmont. And if you've, uh, if you're listening to Noble Blood, um, if you've been listening to Noble Blood. Isabella or Isabella of Angoulême retires to a convent after her scandal. Exactly. So lots of stylish women are staying at this convent. And in an almost unheard of turn of events, the judge actually sides with Josephine during the legal separation. And he agrees that Josephine has been wronged. He orders Alexandre to take care of his children and to withdraw any accusations towards Josephine. Alexandre does none of that. <laughs> but uh, fortunately, the other women at this convent had taken it upon themselves to give Josephine a makeover. <laughs> so, so they teach her how to use makeup, which she will use a massive amount of throughout the rest of her life. They also showed her how to lose weight, um, mostly by not subsisting entirely on candy. 
And uh, the fashions were also changing. Marie Antoinette was going through her petite Trianon phase right now. So instead of the huge pompadour, roughly hyper-feminine gowns, people were dressing in much more simple muslin gowns, and that suited Josephine a lot better, and she felt a lot more comfortable in that. So after her time at the convent, she went to Fontainebleau, where the king had his hunt, and she charmed the master of the hunt. Uh, he invited her to come along hunting with the various aristocrats that the king invited. She was able to find a protector very quickly. I think she had three of them. All of them were about 20 years older than her. They were giving her a tremendous amount of jewels. She was able to take care of her children. And I think had things continued this way, she probably would have ended up like her aunt being a permanent mistress to one of these men. Except uh, a revolution Except. happened. <laughs> 1789, the revolution promising equality for the common people comes. And Alexandre, for once in his miserable fucking life, is a little bit useful for Josephine. He was a noble, but he was also a staunch anti-royalist. Mm. He was a vicomte. This is stupid. He shouldn't have done this. But uh, he became a key member of the National Assembly, representing a group of nobles that believed that the monarchy should be abolished. And of course, this ended really famously well oh, for him. It ends, he worked out oh, it great for him. It yeah. great for him. Um, uh, but when the royal family attempted to flee the country... It was Alexandre who dispatched the riders to bring him back and wow. the National Assembly that everybody had to wait until the royal family returned, but they couldn't get away from this. He emerged very briefly as a hero to Paris, and Josephine is suddenly very much in style. She's being invited everywhere. She is seen very briefly as being a hero of the revolution. Unfortunately, the promise of democracy did not change France's situation at all. The people who were starving before are still starving. And uh, by 1793, the reign of terror led by Robespierre had begun, and it was carried out with the intent of eliminating anyone deemed parasitic on the state. Uh, and of course, that included... That includes all royals and all members of the Catholic Church. Oh, and Josephine's husband gets the... Uh, Josephine's husband is guillotined very, very quickly. Um, it's so fascinating. I don't want to dwell too much on the Reign of Terror, but uh, the Reign of Terror is fascinating to me. Uh, the executions were... Based on everything, the one that fascinates me is that some executions happened because people had old playing cards. <sighs> and it was seen as showing sympathy towards kings and queens. Sure, if you're playing cards, if kings, kings and queens on them, exactly. why would you yeah. keep that? Um, uh, one of the other special horrors of the revolution that always sticks in my mind. Special, sorry? Special horrors. Horrors. Of, yeah, sorry. of the reign of terror is that a lot of aristocrats had dogs. Uh, so uh, their dogs went wild after they were dragged to the guillotine. And it meant that rabbit packs of dogs were roaming the street, drinking blood out of the gutters. So uh, the army had to be dispatched to start shooting the dogs. That's also another, I mean, it feels like those stories are reappearing because a few hundred years earlier, we're going to get a dog with the beheading of Mary, Queen of Scones. Famously, when before she went to get beheaded, she hid her dog in her skirt, so they came out. Oh, um, the one that it makes me think of is the Rwandan genocide, where the government again had to be dispatched because 
of dogs. So many people were murdered that their dogs just ran wild on the street. Oh, a lot of them God. went avid. This isn't a theory, but I think this feels self-evident. But I think if you have to dispatch the army to kill all the rabid dogs roaming your streets, your revolution has failed. <laughs> you are going to be remembered very poorly by history. It's true. So we need to fast forward just a okay. little bit. And so, so Josephine is Josephine's, put in prison. Josephine's in prison. Josephine is at Les Combes. It's one of the most horrifying prisons in Paris. But good news. Her roommate, in her cellmate, I guess, in the prison is Teresa Cabarrus. She is the mistress to the revolutionary Jean Tallien. Now, Teresa is pretty angry that uh, her boyfriend, protector, whatever, is in close cahoots with Robespierre, and yet she's imprisoned. So she sends Tallien a dagger and a letter demanding that he kill Robespierre and free her immediately. And if he doesn't do this, he's not a man. And she feels personal shame that she ever slept with. <laughs> um, and Tallien actually does this, which is amazing to me. For, I, he's like, okay, Robespierre has to go for all the reasons, but also for but, this. No, very much specifically for <laughs> this and only for this. So when Robespierre is giving a speech at a convention, Talion storms the stage, waving the dagger Teresa sent him and shouting down with this dictator. His co-conspirator, Paul de Barras, joins him and Robespierre flees. He tries to shoot himself, but he only succeeds in shattering his jaw before being dragged to the guillotine. Talion and Barras emerge from this as heroes. Barras became the head of the new directorate government. He's also one of the only remaining super wealthy men in Paris. And Josephine emerged from prison at Teresa's behest. Teresa, who has become a hero to the Parisians, has not forgot her friend. But Josephine emerges to find Paris in ruins. Most of the homes have been lit ablaze. But she's popular again. Yeah. And this is about when she'll meet Napoleon at a party? Almost, yes. Okay, we're coming to that. Uh, the Baron de Friendly wrote at this time that after the reign of terror, it was in the height of good manners to be ruined, to have been suspected, persecuted, and above all, imprisoned. People started wearing their hair cropped to imitate prison styles. They were Quoi for la victime. Quoi for la victime, yes. Uh, my French pronunciation is not as good as yours. Red ribbons around their necks and a nod to the guillotine. Josephine's welcome at the extremely exclusive ball de victime where... Do Which, you believe the ball de victim actually happened? All the time, yes. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Um, I, yeah. I, there were basically like support groups for people who had been imprisoned. There were special salons for people who had been imprisoned. I just mean from a purely historical standpoint, it was whether whether the actual, like the main ball de la victim was a, actually happened or was like a romantic invention. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I and don't I think know a combination. Period to really say. My guess and my speculation is it's like a combination. Like I think people were having these parties, mm -hmm. and then I think in the Romantic era, people were like building up their ideas of uh, like the one invite only. Party. Yeah. The um, uh, speaking of parties, Josephine was spending <laughs> an astronomical amount. She was one of the only women in the city with a carriage at a time when bread was so scarce that wealthy people brought their own food to every dinner party because you couldn't expect other people to have food. Josephine was also deeply in debt. She's being constantly pursued. Well, by she's spending all her money on carriages. She, she's an insane expense. Um, she's in desperate need of a protector who will cover her expensive. Fortunately, she'd remained very close with Teresa, who's universally beloved in Paris. And... Uh, 
she's now married to Talian and hosting some truly extravagant orgies. So uh, Josephine becomes one of the marvelouses of this period. She appears around town clad in only see-through Greek-style gowns and sandals. Um, some of the marvelouses walk through the streets with their breasts exposed. Um, most of them soaked their gowns in water so they would cling to their bodies before going out. And around this time, Teresa introduces her to Paul de Barras. Paul's now the president of the National Assembly. He's the richest man in Paris. He's able to pay off the many, many people pursuing Josephine for money. And he asks only that she'll arrange orgies for him. <laughs> she does in very extravagant style. Apparently at these orgies, women dip their breasts in champagne glasses. They stripped naked and pretended to be jungle cats. They took off their dresses and wagered on who wore the least. Josephine sat on Deborah's lap the entire time so he could fondle and have sex with her throughout. Everything's going great. She's enjoying life. <laughs> and it was around this time that a 22-year-old Corsican general appears. And uh, it's Napoleon Bonaparte. He is absolutely agog at the women in Paris. Uh, um... He writes to her brother that here alone they deserve to rule. All the men are mad for them. They think of nothing but them. They live only for them. A woman needs to live in Paris for six months to know what her due is. He has big virgin energy. He has big virgin. He's very, very much a virgin. Women also don't like him. He is a very brilliant military strategist. He is very uncomfortable to talk to. His technique with women was to stare at them for many, many minutes on end and not say anything. Most women found this very creepy. Sure. But Napoleon was one of Deborah's protégés. So he seats him next to Josephine at a seemingly non-orgy-related dinner. Sure, that's what they say. And whenever it's it's like, oh, how do you meet? And it's like, they met on Tinder. But it's like, oh, we met at a, you know, through a friend. party. And so it's like, it was a non-orgy party. I think this one was a non-orgy <laughs> party because I think Napoleon would have been very frightened. Yeah. Um, but it's funny to imagine them trying to whitewash how, they, sure. the, how we met story. Yeah. And Josephine was nice to him. He says that she's... The first woman in Paris who has been nice to him. She just talked to him about how she thought his military strategy was smart the entire time and touched his arm. Oh. I think it's interesting that in the movie, they make her seem like an elusive creature of mystery. And it's it's not that. She was just a very pretty lady who was being nice to him at dinner. And Napoleon was in love. He proposes very soon after and Josephine, to everyone's surprise, I think they were married six months after meeting. Yep. Um, and people kept wondering why she was marrying this man who was commonly accepted to be a fool, especially because by Josephine's own admission, she had only lukewarm feelings towards him. Barras said that she was motivated entirely by money and she would behead her own lover if she could drink gold out of his skull. <laughs> um, but Barras was pretty mad about this. And Napoleon had so much less money than any other man she knew. He made 15,000 francs a year, and that's what she was spending on makeup at this point. And I, I think, you know, a slightly more pragmatic explanation is that Josephine is 31 by this point. Uh, Barras is very unlikely to marry her. She probably is thinking about her future in in a somewhat strategic way. If Napoleon isn't successful now, he seems like he's on the verge of becoming very successful. 
But I think the most charitable explanation is just that he is a very awkward little foreigner overawed by Paris, who everybody thinks is awkward and dumb. And I think he probably reminded her of a younger version of herself in a way that she felt very tenderly towards. I will also say there's something very charming. I think Napoleon is a very smart man. I think we can say that. I think he's a brilliant military. Brilliant in, you know, in certain ways. I think that she probably found his intelligence attractive. But what I also find very attractive is someone who, like, openly really likes you. Barras really like look, but she wasn't I'm, gonna marry him. I'm saying like she was a guy who's like, I love you, I want to marry you, and I'd be like, all right, let's get on with it. You know, I I think that's interesting. But uh, shortly after their marriage, he goes off to Italy. He writes her a constant stream of letters. This is if you are a noble blood listener, um, listen to our episode on the Black Count Thomas Alexander Dumas, and that'll be like a good companion to this because you're like, what was Napoleon off doing in Italy and Egypt? That oh, that episode will give uh, the context. And meanwhile, he's over there, Josephine. Josephine. Um, one of his letters says that if Josephine ever takes a lover, he will enact Othello-style revenge, murdering her and her lover and himself. This is all of the letters. This is how they all read. He keeps writing things. I feel like I've read these letters, and he's like, if you loved me, you would write me twice a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good women wouldn't be yeah. me constantly. I know. I, I find I don't care for Napoleon's letters. I know so that they see. I know that they go for millions and millions of dollars at auction. But what bothers me the most about them is that there is no teasing. There's no warmth of familiarity. There's no friendship in those letters. Napoleon was an aspiring romantic novelist when he came to Paris. <laughs> he was trying to write a romantic novel. And I think in all of his letters, Josephine could be replaced by a sexy automaton and the letters would read exactly the Yeah, same. it's not very personal. I, well, I think if you've paid attention to someone's sandwich preferences and uh, sent them a link to a sandwich shop you think they'd enjoy, it would be more romantic than anything Napoleon wrote Josephine. Seems like he's just very, I mean, he's very excited about being in love. And desperate for, I mean, not to extend the metaphor of conquering, but like to own and possess That's this woman. Yes. I have a wife. I love her. She loves me. Yes. I have her. That is set. Yes. Um, yes. Josephine says that he does not love her. He worships her. Yeah. And I, I think that does get at some of the difference there. Now, Josephine, while he is away, has taken a lover, Hippolyte Charles. Oh, yeah. He was 23. He was very, very handsome. He fit in very well with Josephine's Paris friends. Barras said he looked like a wig maker's dummy. Barras <laughs> is my favorite person in this entire story. Napoleon, meanwhile, was in despair. He writes Barras that if Josephine didn't join him in Italy, he was going to kill himself. <laughs> and Josephine's like, no thanks. Um, Not this time of year. Correct. Uh, Barras needed. Napoleon to win battles in Italy because France needs to reestablish itself as a country with some kind of military power. So Barras tells Josephine that he is throwing a very elaborate dinner for her. <laughs> he does indeed throw this dinner. Apparently it's very nice. And afterwards, he picks her up, bundles her into a carriage, and tells her she has to go to Italy. Now, I don't know how to explain their relationship at this point, except they seem to be best friends who hate each other. <laughs> um, uh, the compromise is that they agree that she can bring Hippolyte Charles along with her to Italy. So uh, off 
Josephine goes to Italy. She seems to somewhat enjoy her time in Italy. But before long, Napoleon has to head on to Egypt. And he continues um, sending letters to Josephine constantly. Meanwhile, Josephine goes off to take the waters for her health. She writes to Brass, telling him that she hopes he gets really, really, really sick so he can join her. I love their relationship. And... In Egypt, Napoleon is talking about his wife so constantly that his soldiers say that it verges on idolatry. His aide-de-camp, who was having an affair with Josephine's maid, finally tells him that Josephine is having an affair. Napoleon is devastated. He writes his brother that he's going to get a divorce. The ship carrying his letter is seized. And it gets reprinted and distributed in all the British papers. Oh, that's so embarrassing. Oh, British people are so excited. They're so happy. This is a great day for them. Debt collectors assume that Josephine will be divorced imminently and they sit on her. Deborah stops French papers from printing this article. He fights off all her debt collectors and he gets her the money to buy a house called Malmaison, where he tells her to wait this out. Um, and locals report that they often see her walking with a handsome young man who must be her son. Uh-huh. It's Hippolyte. It's always it's her lover. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Napoleon decided to even the score by having an affair with a young soldier's wife named Pauline, who had accompanied her husband to Egypt. He had no idea how to initiate this affair because he was the least charming person alive. So he just did his thing where he stared at her for the entire hot air balloon launch they were attending. Pauline said, and she's like, look at that hot air balloon. It's going up that way. Pauline said that this made her intensely uncomfortable. Um, then Napoleon sent an aide of his to describe that he wanted to have sex with her. She said no and that she was married, and this made her, again, very uncomfortable. Then he sent her a diamond bracelet, and she relented immediately. Yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, enough is enough. So I, so fast-forwarding a little bit, why does Napoleon ultimately forgive Josephine? So uh, Napoleon returns to Paris. Josephine has been waiting for him. Unfortunately, she's at another house when he returns. Napoleon is devastated. He finally finds her at the house she's at. She's sobbing hysterically, and she sends her two children to go bang on his door. And she has coached them to say, our father is already dead. Must we lose our second father? Um, So she has her two sobbing children doing this. Uh, Then she goes in. She has sex with Napoleon. The next morning, he announces he's not going to get a divorce. It's going to be fine. But Napoleon does continue to have affairs throughout the rest of his marriage. He never again indulges in the kind of single-minded worship of Josephine. He'll have an illegitimate child. He will have an illegitimate child later. Um, Now, shortly after this, if we jump ahead a little bit, Napoleon... Stages a coup to overthrow the from the director. Spoiler alert: Napoleon becomes emperor, crowns himself, yeah. crowns Josephine. Yeah, um, Barras gets exiled to Brussels. He continues to write Josephine constantly. Josephine never writes him back again. Yikes! What did he ever do other than end the reign of terror and try to have a democracy? Well, you can't and have orgies and bail Josephine out of every problem she ever had. You can't be one of the main guys when there's a new emperor. You gotta, you gotta, you know. All right, Barclay the one, the one truly lovely man in this story. So Josephine and Napoleon move into the decrepit Tuileries Palace. 
On the gates of that palace hung a sign from the revolution that read on the 10th of August, 1792, royalty was abolished in France and will never return. The first thing Napoleon did was scrub away all revolutionary signs. Um, he said he did not like to see that shit around. <laughs> and he began referring to Louis XVI as the good Louis XVI. Well, I do think, I mean, not to, to step on this and to agree, I think that part of Napoleon's like, claim to power was reestablishing the, the, oh, the bad so. revolution, the good power of France. And I mean, I, if you think back, if you as a listener are sort of imagining the imagery and architecture and uh, fashion and and furnish furnishings that we associate with Napoleon. Mm -hmm. It's very gilded. It's very regal. It's like red velvet. And it gold. is. At one point, Josephine had a dress that was covered entirely with real rose petals. I she had a dress that was made entirely of peacock feathers. Yeah. Um, Josephine also bought 900 dresses a year, five <laughs> times more than Marie Antoinette ever bought. I read a thing that she never wore the same pair of stockings twice. Well, that's smart. I mean, they rip. That, <laughs> that makes sense. But also, in, in her defense, mm -hmm. I think Napoleon, maybe she went a little far, but I think he was very much advocating for, like, we have to play this part. We took power by force, so we have to present power. They brought back people to talk about how everything used to be done at the court, so they could try to mimic it. Now, Josephine was never comfortable with this. She was sleeping in Marie Antoinette's chambers, and she claimed that she could hear the queen's ghost asking her what she was doing in her bed. Oh, so um, creepy. I love it. Also around this time, Napoleon declared that French women needed to learn obedience. So he rolled back women's rights enormously. Husbands could now imprison their wives for infidelity. Also, and unrelated to, to the sexism aspect of this, I just want to remind people that Napoleon and France is the only country in history to ever reinstate slavery. Slavery, yep. Um, people thought it was because of Josephine's influence because she grew up on a plantation and she sure. was comfortable. I mean, I also think it was partly because Napoleon, I mean, they just needed like them. I don't think he <laughs> cared about the the revolutionary ideals. I think he was driven by like cold economic uh, prospects, yes, absolute lust for power, power and yes. money. Yeah, so uh, that's not good. Yeah, uh, Madame de Stael, who adored Napoleon at the beginning of his reign, um, uh, and wrote him letters saying that she should be his mistress rather than this insignificant woman, Josephine, which Napoleon was very uninterested in. He despised intellectual women. Really? Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, her move with men was to ask them who their favorite woman in history was so oh. she can have a lively conversation with them. My favorite Madame de Stel quote that I feel like I come back to a lot is, and I'm paraphrasing, but the one must in life choose between boredom and suffering. Well, that's very depressing. I know. <laughs> and as two adult what women. What they called it? Contentment. Contentment is better than boredom. Um, but isn't that just like very uh, insightful? Yes. Yeah. She was a very insightful woman who, when she asked Napoleon that, had him reply, whichever woman bore the most children. Uh, Madame de Stille is shortly after this going to have to flee the country. Um, the censorship that had so horrified Madame Pompadour is back in full force. The Marquis de Sade is imprisoned shortly after the publishing of Juliet. Which uh, we have a, an episode on. Are you doing an episode on Juliet? Oh, no, are you doing Justine we, and Juliet? We've or? done the Marquis de Sade. Oh. So if you are uh, a listener, you know all about the Marquis de Sade's imprisonment and his long-suffering wife. God, his poor wife. <laughs> you read much Marquis de Sade? Not on purpose. I read some for that episode. And I was, I literally, I think I said in the episode, I was like, I'm not quoting any of this. 
I'm not recommending it. I don't find it pleasant. I think it's like a the equivalent of like a shock comic. Um, it's a shock comic. I actually love Juliet as a proto-feminist piece about a we woman who only does bad on things and comes out on top. But um, it is pornography. It's pornography. It's, it's nothing I would recommend any any esteemed listeners of this show. But this is basically the end of female intellectuals in France where Louis XV had consulted with Madame Pompadour all through the Seven Years' War. What Napoleon liked was for Josephine to sit in front of him in total silence while he thought about military matters. She was a gilded statue. She was a beautiful statue for him. And uh, at the coronation, uh, Napoleon, obviously, oh, the Catholic Church is back, too. So, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, we've rolled back everything the revolution tried to accomplish. So the Pope is there for Napoleon's coronation, but Napoleon crowns himself, as we assume all listeners know. And he also crowns Josephine. And one of my small comforts of this is that there was one spectator at the coronation that saw Josephine walking down the aisle in her finery and said, oh, look, there's Barossa's whore. Oh. Um, sorry, I don't love Josephine that much. No, she's, a, she's, she's an not, interesting She's figure, an interesting But figure. she's also not, I think the, the important thing about history is you don't have to like everyone I you talk about. I don't feel the fierce loyalty to her that I do to some female historical figures. I think she is an amazing survivor. Well, but, to fast forward again a little bit, obviously Josephine um, probably in part thanks to her age and also the toxic makeup she was wearing. And also the fact that she had been using um, contraceptive contraceptive douches for years and she had broken her pelvis. Um, So for all of these factors combined, she can't can't bear children, she can't bear Napoleon and heir. Mm -hmm. And so reluctantly, uh, they divorce. They divorce. Um, She... Napoleon um, marries 19-year-old Marie-Louise in 1810. Nice Catholic princess. A nice Catholic princess. Their first meeting was arranged at the Chateau de Compiègne, where Louis XVI met Marie Antoinette for the first time. Like Marie Antoinette, Marie-Louise had to, because he really just wants to be Louis XVI at this point, had to get rid of all of her French clothing before... Austrian clothing. Austrian clothing before crossing into France. And she had to get rid of her dog, just like Marie Antoinette. And she hated this and was mad about it. And as soon as Napoleon was exiled to Elba, she never wrote him again. And went off with her lover. She's like, this isn't my my bargain. She did her job. She gave him a son. Meanwhile, uh, Josephine retires to Malmaison, her house. She is given an allowance of three million francs, as well as four thousand dollars to go exclusively to her garden. Now, Josephine got really into plants at one point. It's one of her main accomplishments. She introduced the concept of English gardens to Versailles. And uh, Malmaison became an incredibly beautiful home. Her granddaughter recalls wandering around eating sugarcane on oh, the grounds, just like what a nice her grandmother. But uh, Josephine was inconsolable. Uh, she said that sometimes it seems as though I am dead and that all that is left is a faint sensation of knowing that I no longer exist. I mean, yeah, imagine feeling, I mean, it's literally redundancy. Yeah. Um, but it's the most, it's like, if you get laid off and they're like, it's not personal, but it's like, it's the most personal thing. It was her whole identity. is a crippling redundancy, I think, because she was not valued. And again, we're coming back to Pompadour. Pompadour yeah. also has to stop being the king's mistress. But her retirement but is getting to still be Her retirement is uh, 
instead of having sex nine times a day, I'm just going to talk about politics and all of the enlightenment writers are going to come and read me their drafts and I'll give them advice. On them. I mean, that's the horrible thing where it's like if you're a woman and your only value is childbearing or being sexually attractive, then yeah. you that's your job to a job. And Josephine was still seen as a treasure to some of the allies. The Tsar of Russia came to visit her at Malmaison frequently. And um, but uh, she was never happy again. Um, Josephine's overriding emotion seems to be despair at this point in her life. And in 1814, she caught a cold and lapsed into a delirium. Supposedly, she could be heard muttering Napoleon Elba, King of Rome. Mm. Just before she died, she insisted on being dressed in her pink satin morning gown and rubies in case anyone important came to visit. Oh. And uh, she likely died of pneumonia, though her maid said that she died of grief at the age of 51. 51, very young. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of this tragic life, and I'm so glad you brought up Madame de Pompadour in comparison. Well, I think it is such an interesting commentary on the revolution that they did it, and now everything is the same, but everything is worse. And I think that when people um, view Napoleon and Josephine as this, like, great romance, like, I think it's it's a false image. I, I don't even think it works well in the movie. No. I think you can take so many creative liberties when you're making a movie. But I also think, I think a lot about the fact that these people didn't read. Yeah. And I think one thing that does come out of reading a great deal, at least hopefully, is a kind of healthy self-awareness and a sense of humor about yeah. yourself. And Josephine and Napoleon had absolutely no senses of humor. Very not serious. Yeah, they were deeply serious people. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I do think um, in terms of a noble blood epilogue, the one weird detail about her life that I always find sort of morbidly fascinating is that when she felt her position with Napoleon slipping a little, she had her daughter, Hortense, marry Napoleon's brother. Yep, Louis, who she hated. It, it's just... And everybody agreed Louis was awful. Yeah, that's exactly why people need, needed Napoleon to divorce Josephine, because they were like, we can't have the power going to his awful brother. Exactly. Nobody wanted Louis to be emperor. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, imagine Napoleon's stepdaughter then becoming his sister-in-law. It's just wild. I mean, there's a lot of inter-family marriage <laughs> at this point, just in some desperate attempt to preserve power, even with Josephine. Oof. But, uh, yeah, no, I I feel impressed that Josephine was able to survive at all. I think it's interesting that she was able to use her sexuality in that way and that her sexuality was a thing that was very much created and not innate to her. 
She was not born incredibly beautiful the way we hear about some of the powerful women from this period were. And um, that's, you know, that's obviously something that is worthy of respect and such a survival tool. And uh, that's very, very interesting. I think because Napoleon hated intellectual women, it's a little unsatisfying to try to look at more of Josephine's accomplishments. But I could also be wrong. As Ridley Scott said, were you there? Then you don't fucking know. Yes. <laughs> I was not there. Not I, there. I am sure there are scholars of Josephine who would uh, set, me, set me to rights and tell me that she had a fascinating and rich inner life that I just wasn't as evident as it might have been with some other historical women. And one theme that I found always so fascinating in Noble Blood is this stark juxtaposition, this like tragic juxtaposition I found between incredible glamour, like these people spending exorbitant amount of money. She spent $800 a year on, 800 francs a year on perfume when the average Parisian family's income was 600 francs. So this just like extraordinary glamour in concert with these tragic mechanisms and feeling trapped, I just find it very interesting as this like, this reinforcing idea where it's like, it's a cliche that money doesn't buy you happiness and power doesn't buy you happiness. But it's like, I think we as audience members and, and podcast listeners and writers are drawn mm-hmm. to uh, uh, power and money and glamour. And then all the more interesting when there's this like, deeply tragic undercurrent to it. It is a deeply tragic undercurrent. Um, yeah, no, she, her, look, I, I think at least by the standards of the time, um, Josephine could count herself as someone who was deeply loved. Yeah. Uh, she obviously ended this a millionaire many, many times over. She had a very beautiful home and she had two children who seemed very devoted to her. This isn't a tragic story. It's just a story about the limitations that were placed on women at that time, which to me do feel especially tragic if you believe that the revolution was supposed to create some kind of equality. I think that is a beautiful note to end on. Jennifer, where can the good people find you? Oh, um, they can find me on threads because I don't do threads. Well, no one should. Um, Nobody should. It's Jen Ashley Wright on threads. Please plug plug your writing. Oh, and uh, um, my most recent book is Madame Restelle, A History of New York's Most Fabulous, Fearless, and Infamous Abortionist. Um, and you can get it wherever books are sold. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Noble Blood is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Noble Blood is created and hosted by me, Dana Schwartz, with additional writing and researching by Hannah Johnston, Hannah Zwick, Mira Hayward, Courtney Sender, and Lori Goodman. The show is edited and produced by Noemi Griffin and Rima Ilkayali, with supervising producer Josh Thane and executive producers Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, Visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hold up. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.